You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Make It Already for Tuesday, the 17th of August, 2021. Thank you all for tuning in. Apologies, we're starting later than I would have liked. Um, normally 9 o'clock uh, UK time. You're going to have to look that up in your 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 time zone, wherever you are in the world. Uh, 9 p.m. UK time, but it's, uh, it's probably closer to 10.30 now. <laughs> so um, apologies, my initial thought was I was going to do another program. It was responding to a question, listener question, but I actually figured out that it was better to respond to it via email. And um, also this story where they're going to come tonight, William Lane Craig, he was on the Unbelievable, is it, I don't know if it's radio, it's it's always on YouTube, anyway, Unbelievable Broadcast with uh, Justin Brierley, that's the title of it, that's not me comment that it's unbelievable or anything like that but um that's the name of the program it's based in uk and um it's part of premier christian radio's uh, group i don't know how exactly it works but um justin burley's name he's fairly well known anyway so william lane craig and another gentleman was also on uh this program talking about a topic that's very, very close to my heart and a topic that I see is vitally important is Adam and Eve, and especially as it ties in with Romans 5 and other places like that in regards to original sin. I have done programs before on William Lane Craig's often unorthodox views and... Um, there's a number of them. He's unorthodox views, especially with regards to Roman Catholicism and other things like this. But um, he, we're going to get into it in a second, but he calls Genesis 1 to 11, chapters 1 to 11, mytho-history, which is a term that he's gotten from another uh, thinker, a person I haven't heard of before, but... Uh, this is problematic and we're going to go through it and, and look at what, what are the problems with such a view. Now, normally at the beginning of the program, I would read from the Psalms just for this program. We'll, we'll get back to it next week. I'm going to not do that. I'm going to read from another part of scripture instead. Uh, we're going to read from creation week and we're going to read from Genesis chapter one. We're going to read from Genesis chapter one, verse one, all the way to Genesis chapter two, verse three. Because I want us to see what's at stake here, and I want us to see what they're asking us to believe. These people who say, oh, no, 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 this isn't literal, this is uh, figurative, and and why? I want us to read it, because I think half the time I wonder how many people read devotionally, or claim to Christians, read devotionally, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And if, you know, the much of the professing church has become a 
really just reading the New Testament. It's hard to know exactly what people do, but we need to read through the scriptures and really, really think of what's at stake here and what damage can be done with these aberrant views. So I'm going to read now Creation Week of how God created the heaven and the earth in six days. So let us read God's holy word. We're going to start from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way down to Genesis chapter 2, because that's really the end of creation week. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Let us hear God's word, and we'll just pray first. Heavenly Father, we pray for your help, we pray for your guidance, and we pray, O Lord, that anything that we would say this night and uh, would be grounded in Scripture and anchored in the Word of the living God. I pray this, this program would bless people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The world was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called light. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass and herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament, of the heavens to divide the days from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons, and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light to the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with 
which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle, creeping thing, and beast of the earth according to its kind. And it was so. God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the, fle- the, f- the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth. And every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food, also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was good, very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. May God bless his word. So that's, okay, that's not all that's at stake here because he's claiming, this is William Lane Craig responding to, and not the first person to attack Genesis 1 to 11. And somebody might listen to this and think, well, is he really attacking it? Is it really that big a deal? He's a defender of the faith. He has debated notable atheists. He has intellectually stood up to them, and he may have even helped you come to the Christian faith. During my time, before I became a Christian, a Roman Catholic gave me a Mary medal and challenged me to read the Bible. I think that was a major thing God and his providence used in to challenge me eventually I read the Bible like a couple months later but does that mean that therefore I should use Mary Mills and idolatry in order to no Roman Catholicism is a false religion the Lord can use various different people who may not have the most orthodox Christianity to point you towards the truth And in his mercy and his grace, eventually you get to the point where you believe in Christ. The person who shared the gospel with you the first time may not be that sound, or whatever the case may be. 
the person who may have witnessed to you. Maybe they're not even going to church anymore. I understand the emotional appeal that some people may have towards William Lane Craig and other people of that sort because they probably helped them along the way. And if they did, praise God. But at the same time, we can't ignore these issues. And they undermine the foundations of the faith, the very foundations of creation itself. Because if we can't trust Genesis 1 to 11, you can't trust anything. Now, we know he's saying, oh, well, it's not that we don't trust him. It's just a different type of literature. But we'll get into this in a while. He's saying, well, it's a type of literature of the ancient world, mytho history, which is basically that it, some of it's myth and some of it's, it's pointing towards some kind of history somewhere, but it's wrapped in a myth that's really pointing towards history. That's William Lane Craig's position. He doesn't deny that Adam was the first, Adam and Eve were the first human beings. But the problem is, he sees pre-human ancestors before that. So, humans are really evolved animals, if you really boil it down. He's an evolutionist. And he's been an evolutionist for a long time. And hopefully... Look, I came from a science background. I, I had a degree in biomedical science, I thought, when I came out of college, it was laughable to think of what, six-day creation? The Earth was created 6,000 years ago? I would have laughed at that kind of stuff years ago. But when I was humbled by the gospel, very, very simply, I said, well, if we're using this as our final authority, then God created the heaven and the earth in six days, and I don't have any problem with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Unfortunately, it goes even further with William Lane Craig. Now, he was on the, the Premier Christian Radio program, Unbelievable, him and another gentleman by the name of Joshua Swamistad, sorry, Swam, Swam, Somastas. I'm incredibly sorry. Um, didn't pronounce that incredibly well. Another researcher in this area. He seems to be doing a more genetic area, but I'm not really going to be commenting on him because I don't really know much, if anything, really about him. William Lane Craig's book on this topic is going to be coming out, it looks like, in a few months' time. I've got it in pre-order on Amazon, and I plan to review it once it comes out. I'm going to play through as much as I possibly can of this interview between Justin Brierley, this other gentleman, Joshua Swamadass. Um, Swamadass. Again, apologies for butchering the pronunciation of that name. Uh, and the title of the video, if you're looking for it on YouTube, is Was, a, Was There a Historic Adam and Eve? So let's start playing this because we have a lot to get through. Hello and welcome along to today's edition of the program. And if you're watching here on YouTube, do make sure to like today's video and subscribe to the channel to get more from the show. And you can find more also with the info from today's show. You can get hold of our newsletter and our regular podcast as well. Today on the program, we're asking what can we know about the historical Adam and Eve? The story of the creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis is the first human couple is perhaps the foundational origin story of the Bible. But 
What sort of a story are we dealing with? Should Christians treat the story purely figuratively? Or is it scientifically and historically plausible that humanity... Now, just the... Mm. There are parts of the Bible that are figurative, but think of a figurative language in this sense. It's like a signpost that points towards something else that is literal. And if you're going to say figurative, you can't get out of it that easily. You know, you can say that the book of Revelation is largely figurative, but it points towards other things. And other parts of the scripture points towards that literal truth. You know, the, the temple is a figure of the body of Christ, for example. But you still have to point out how and you have to lay out the parameters. You can't just put it in there because you don't think that a snake talks or anything else like that. You have to compare scripture with scripture. Can be traced back to a first couple. And if so, how do we map that onto the Genesis account? Well, Christian philosopher William Lane Craig's new book, In Quest of the Historical Adam, is a biblical and scientific exploration of precisely these kinds of questions. And today he joins me, along with com computational biologist Joshua Swamidas, whose own book, The Genealogical Adam. Swamidas, that's how you pronounce his name. Apologies there has sought to build a bridge of sorts between the creation account of a first couple and the genetic evidence for such an idea. So I'm really pleased to have both uh, Joshua and Bill joining me. Uh, again, this is a really simple issue. You don't have to, you don't have to be an expert about modern views, modern views of evolutionary biology, whatever things are floating around and the latest views, they're constantly changing all the time. We know that Adam and Eve, this is what the biblical record states, and we read it earlier a second ago, that Adam Adam was created out of dust, the earth, and Eve was created from a rib taken from Adam. You might find that difficult to believe. The problem is your unbelief of what the scriptures are saying. I remember when I, I was saved a short time, and a friend of mine at the time, we, we were drinking buddies years ago. And he I remember him saying to me, you don't believe in Adam and Eve, do you? Still remember that to this day. And I remember I paused like a rabbit in the headlights. And I, I actually just said, I remember I was saved like a month or two, maybe less than that. I don't know how long I was saved, but I don't know. Did, did I say, I don't know, or I, I said, I I think I said yes. I'm not exactly sure how I responded. But it can be difficult when you're kind of... You see, the world says that this is ridiculous. It shouldn't even be entertained. It's, it's laughable to think that. But why? Same world who's pretending that it won't die and meet God one day and have to stand in its own and answer for its own sins against God. The scientific community, academia, doesn't want to think about any possibility of Genesis, the part started of Genesis, being true. They don't want to hear it. Greetings, everybody. Um, one thing I forgot to say is, and I really enjoyed in the last program for the chat room, please tell us where you're from. Um, greetings, Molly from Costa Rica. Um, tell us 
There's another person in the chat, Vladimir, if you could let us know where you're listening from, that'd be great. It was cool the last time. I'll I'll mention you in the program if you like. Um, you know, I think it's pretty public or anything. I try, I'm very, very cautious about mentioning names. Sometimes it's usually because in case people are shy or whatever and they want to ask questions confidentially. Uh, if you do want to ask me a question confidentially, you can do so at megiddoradio at gmail.com. And I will, if I want to mention your name in the program, I will ask you for permission to do so because I, you know, it, nothing worse than revealing somebody's secrets. Although if, if it is of a sensitive nature, usually it's better to go with your own minister who you've got a trusting relationship with over a long period of time. On the show today, you've both been on the show many times before now, but we'll, um, we'll introduce Bill first of all. Bill, tell us about this book and um, what got you into the whole area of wanting to research the origins of Adam and Eve and the biblical and scientific aspect of all of this? For years, people have been urging me to write a systematic philosophical theology based upon my life's work. And I realized that if I were to undertake such an ambitious project, I would need to bone up in certain areas of systematic theology where I felt weak. And one of those areas was theological anthropology. A bit of a, you know, I know sometimes we could be being modest when we say oh, I was weak in this area, whatever. And he is chronically weak in many, many different areas. Um, but it's amazing that somebody who, could you imagine if uh, uh, somebody going around as a, seen as a theologian, doesn't even know about the origin of man. That's that's you know that's basically what he's saying. Can you imagine? Let's put it another way. Could you imagine if someone went around saying I was ignorant of the gospel as a preacher? Yet this guy is William Lane Craig is first and foremost a philosopher. He is not a theologian. First and foremost, and when he comes to the scriptures, he uses philosophy. He's a philosopher, first and foremost, and he uses human reason, first and foremost. For years, I had basically been sweeping the question of the historical Adam and Eve and the whole primeval history of Genesis 1 to 11 under the rug uh, and not really dealing with it. And I finally decided I need... There seems to be a bit of embarrassment. I don't want to be re reading into his intentions or whatever, but the... It just seems to be throughout his career over certain issues that he's been asked about during debates, during Q&As, a certain embarrassment about certain issues. And he has presented a Christianity of a lowest common denominator of the smallest. He even during a, I think it was during a Q&A years ago, didn't really think that a Christian needed to believe in the infallibility of scripture. He just had to believe in Jesus and that was it. See, he reduces everything down to what he sees as the irreducible, you know, just the smallest target possible because everything for him is about apologetics and winning the debate and all that kind of thing. Okay, uh, just from the chat room, welcome. Uh, welcome from Macedonia. We had a listener from Macedonia. That, that's really, really cool. And les listener from Alberta, Canada. Welcome. So that's really cool. <laughs> Sometimes you'll be doing these programs like people are listening from Canada and Macedonia. That is... That's really cool. Anyway, welcome everybody who's listening. And if anybody else joins us, please feel free to let us know where you're listening from if you are, in fact, on YouTube at this moment in time. 
to tackle this project head on and come to some sort of a resolution in my thinking with regard to the historical Adam. And so that was why for the last few years I've devoted myself intensively to this study. And and we are the recipients of the, you know, the fruits of that now. But well, what what did you discover under the rug, as it were? What, what, did you come to any firm conclusions? Did you make any discoveries that shocked you in any way? Tell us, tell us about that. For me, Justin, it was personally very rewarding with revelations of insight that came both biblically and scientifically. Biblically, I came to see the first 11 chapters of Genesis, including the stories of Adam and Eve and the fall, as belonging to a particular literary genre um, that has been called mytho-history by eminent uh, ancient Assyriologists like Tor- Mytho-history, mytho-history. I'm going to go to... I don't know if I can do this because three minutes and 25 seconds. I'm going to go to another clip from a different, this I filmed from his uh, YouTube channel. Uh, hopefully it doesn't. Ah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's good. So uh, yeah, I was afraid if I went out of the screen that I wouldn't be able to go back to this, but I can do this. You can tell I don't do this very often on my Mac. Anyway, so here is a two minute clip from his website explaining what mytho history is. We're going to try not to, read into his statements, what does he mean by mytho-history, and because we have to critique what he means by it, uh, it's problematic, shall we say. Um, let's, uh, Let's continue. Mytho-history is the name of a peculiar genre of ancient literature that was identified by the great Assyriologist Torkild Jakobsen. Jakobsen, in analyzing a piece of Mesopotamian literature that he called the Eridu Genesis, uh, Eridu was a Babylonian city, um, said that this narrative combines mythological motifs that were current in ancient Mesopotamia along with a historical interest as it narrates the succession of Sumerian kings and the dates of their reigns. And this fusion or combination of mythology and history, Torkild Jakobsen called mytho-history. And quite a number of Old Testament scholars have picked up on this and said that this is what we have in Genesis 1 to 11. Yeah, they're also called liberals. hate to point that out, but, you know, just because somebody's a scholar, if they are rejecting much of the text of Scripture, they're probably, I don't want to say in every single case, but most likely liberals. We have a historical account of the pre-patriarchal heroes, such as Adam and Enoch and Noah and others, but these narratives are clothed with the garb of the figurative and metaphorical language of myth. And so they're basically akin to legends, you know, like pointing towards actual things, but, you know, like legends, not really true. And here's the thing, 
he doesn't even know where the myth begins and the legend ends or whatever. Um, could you imagine if you applied the standard right across the scripture? What if you start saying David and Goliath? Well, that's that's part myth. Well, there's no way he's that big, and no way Goliath was that big. Or oh, you know, it wasn't that he de defeated Goliath. He just, you know, he defeated the army over many, many years, and he didn't really do. You know, he didn't really slay this massive giant and cut off his head or with a stone or anything. No, 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 no. It's something else. Why not? Because uh, the 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 language of Genesis one to eleven is not any way different in terms of genre from the rest of the Pentateuch. Why does it suddenly change once we go from Genesis one to eleven to Genesis 12 to, to chapter 50, or for that matter, from for the next book of Moses, which is Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What exactly makes the difference? And when in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it said, this is the history, or this is the Toledot, is the, the Hebrew there. And the word Toledot can be translated in a number of different ways. These are the generations. This is the history um, it's kind of, here's a historical account, and it says this word Toledot, this is an actual unfolding of history, used again in, in Genesis 5.1, used again in, let's look at a few other references here, Genesis 5.1, Genesis 6.9, Genesis 10.1, Genesis 11.10, and also of Ishmael and other places in, in Genesis 25, Genesis 36, and other parts as well. Toledo. This is history. This is an account of man's origin from God. And what is being compared Two, trying to keep my cool here because I'm getting angry thinking about this. What is being compared to is the legendary nonsense of pagan kings. Yeah, there's some history to it, but they're, they're basically embellishing it and lying about it. Isn't that kind of what ancient kings did? They maybe exaggerated what they did and... All this kind of stuff. Oh, it's figurative. In what sense? What does... God said, let there be light, and there was light. What's figurative about that? What does it point towards? It is bringing down the king of kings down to the level of other kings. Uh, welcome. Uh, there's a listener from, no, another listener from Canada. Welcome, Aaron, from Nova Scotia. So if anybody's listening and you're, you're listening on uh, YouTube, please, please let us know where you're listening from. Seems to be a number of people from Canada. I haven't got anybody from the United States yet. That is strange. Anyway, so welcome, everybody. Uh, to the program and uh, so if you have questions during the program I'll do my best to answer them I'm not I'm probably not going to have all the answers I mean I haven't studied 
evolutionary stuff in years, largely because I just kind of, the Bible says one thing, and we need to just spend our time in the infallible record. The passing opinions of men, and they change much. In order to stumble around, the Bible tells us the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He becomes foolish. He hardens his heart against the created order and everything else. So let's go back to the unbelievable radio broadcast. Bill Jacobson. Scientifically, I came to appreciate the full humanity of Neanderthal man. He exhibited modern cognitive behaviors that are evident in the archaeological record, which makes me unwilling to write Neanderthals out of the human race. And that meant that if Adam and Eve is to be the ancestral pair of all humanity, we need to locate them in the most recent common ancestor of both Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, not just Homo sapiens. Um, and so those were in. Yeah, that was uh, okay. <laughs> the Bible says God created on the sixth day, yes, on the sixth day of the week of creation week, Adam and Eve. They were created. Man was created on the sixth day. The expanded account of it is given in Genesis 2, verses 4 onwards. There is no pre-precursor of humankind. It wasn't starting off and evolving to become Adam. Or anything else like that. Greetings from, I cannot pronounce the name of this, but I apologize, uh, from Mexico. Welcome. Um... I will not attempt to pronounce that name. Apology, but welcome, listener from Mexico. So that's wonderful to see. That's amazing how many people are listening. That's amazing. Praise God. Um, so, look, there's times it's very, very hard to make out what William Lane Craig is. I suppose I am not smart enough to know exactly what elite academics like that. I suppose, you know, all, you have to come up with very convoluted, interwebbed, theories in order to get around he's basically trying to mesh together the evolutionary biologist you know like men evolved to he doesn't question that he just treats it as dog dogma and then he says oh, i'm gonna come to scripture and try to marry these two together because he seems to be theoretically at least saying that these things are true let's mash them together and see what kind of a well chimera we can come up with that were brand new for me, that were fresh uh, and very meaningful as a result of this study. And, and would you say that your theology had to accommodate these new insights in some way? Did, did that have to, to change in the process? Well, I didn't know where I was going to wind up when I started this. So this has been a very agonizing personal search, wondering what I might have to give up theologically. And in the introduction to the book, I actually imagine a worst-case scenario. I say, suppose it turns out that Genesis teaches that there was a historical Adam and Eve, and there really wasn't. 
What does that imply for the inspiration of Scripture? What does that imply for the deity of Jesus Christ uh, and his omniscience? Uh, it, it was frightening to contemplate the sort of theological revisions that might be necessary. Fortunately, uh, such revisions, I believe, do not need to be made. Yeah, I want to add to that. I mean, the, the title of the book, the title of the book is The Quest for Historical Adam. Now, just for those in case you're confused who's talking here, this is Joshua Swamidas, who's um, he seemed to have helped out with the project. Again, I don't know a ton about Joshua, but um, he's the other person talking here, and he's also got a book out about it, something similar to this. He seems to have come from kind of a biology background. I need to look up his um, credentials there. I think quest is a great way to describe it. It was it was a journey. Yeah, and just as I said, a computational biologist, peaceful science. Um, so that's that's his background. That I had a, I had a small privilege of, of being part of that conversation with you, but I got I got to say I have a great deal of respect um, for the courage that I think that Bill really demonstrated in you know, taking up this super controversial question <laughs> where. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to skip ahead here a bit just for the sake of time, but a lot of the opening minutes, it's, you come away with the feeling that, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the, or um, the other flood accounts that you can get, uh, which are mytho history, if you want to put it like that. And what I mean by mytho history is um, if you want to use that term, I don't really like that term, but it's their attempt to get it right. And you would have expected that, you know, that a load of cultures had accounts of the flood. Now, the Bible's account of the flood is infallible and inerrant. The other accounts of the flood are wrong in places and different things here and there. But what would we have to say then that partially wrong you know, other accounts of the flood, and partially true. And you have to come away with the same idea that, that the Bible is just one account among many, that they, it's, an, it's a, a, a fallible account. These two things of an infallible Bible and this whole idea of being myth mixed with history or whatever, well, how do you interpret that? I'll say, oh, it's pointing towards something. We don't know what it is, so it's really gibberish. Is that what you're saying? So it really leaves you with a flawed view. A view that, ultimately, Genesis 1 to 11 has to be interpreted. If they're going to be honest here. Has to be interpreted through modern evolutionary biology, and if you look at it like that, well, nobody could have known for the last couple of thousand years what Genesis 1 was talking about. We didn't seem to struggle too much with it up until recent times. It's not to say, by the way, that there hasn't been allegorical approaches to Genesis 1 before. There have. Allegorical approaches go right back to Origen and Clement of Alexander and it was a different challenge back then. They were trying to take their Greek philosophy and really they interpret it from that point of view. And back then they were trying to not, they would say that God in an instant created everything. But 
you could say it was the same problem. It was a problem of authority. They were taking Greek philosophy, and there was other problems, some medieval uh, theologians and other people as well. The odd few people during the Reformation era, they were usually on the fringes. But you come away with this sense of the Genesis 1 to 11 is a flawed account, which is absolute blasphemy. And really coming away with the sense of we don't know how, how Adam fell. Because the, the, the account of the apple, according to William Lane Craig, is, um, not, is so figurative. We don't, what does it mean? I don't know. It couldn't be that. We're, we're going to play some of these clips now just to show this. About 22 minutes into this program, he, well, he, you can listen for yourself, but he's basically mocking the account of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. Let's play. By God's, you know, ultimate purposes for, for humanity and that kind of thing. Yes, that that's exactly correct, that I don't think you should press the details to say that there was this literal tree with bark and leaves and branches that had magical fruit hanging from it that if you ate the fruit you would become immortal and to be clear that's you're saying that based on you're saying that based on hermeneutics not because of science right so it's not because science tells you that right right oh no right yeah this has nothing to do with science uh this never explains why it never explains it's more reason he says i i can't imagine that there's literal fruit and literal tree and all that kind of thing. Do with the hermeneutical question. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And and I'm sorry, I don't normally do this, but it's just the most ink, you know, the most unconvincing smile you've ever seen. You're like, yeah, that's yeah, that's that's the way I'm doing it. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry, guys. Who are you who are you fooling? Who are we kidding? You have here an account where it says that this is what happened. Oh, it's based on hermeneutics. What? I'd love to hear the hermeneutics. What are the hermeneutics? Show us where, like, you know, the book of Revelation opens with a clear sense of which this is given, this revelation is given to Jesus Christ in signs. Okay, we're told. The book of Zechariah, we're, we're, we're shown that what happens? Zachariah's given visions and he explains the visions. It's clearly apocalyptic in terms of that. Um, when we come to the dreams of Joseph, we're, we're clear that these need to be interpreted some other. So show me. Show me how this. Where's the, the, the interpretative key, shall we say, for the tree, for the apple? For Are these things absolutely meaningless? Are they misleading? Are they lies? Are they lies? Cultures have their myth and their things, and, and sometimes they're blending with history, but they're untruths. They're things that are not factually accurate. Oh, we don't mean myth like that. Sure you don't. But, but then, if you like, the... You you do get these, you know, as you say, genealogies that sort of evidently they want to place it in a kind of historical sense. And that even though there is quite a difference between the kind of 
story you get from Genesis 12 onwards of Abraham and the people of Israel. Nonetheless, I think that it is very different. But nonetheless, you know, there are genealogies that, that do sort of take it back to Adam. So what do you do with those? Are the, uh, what, what... Here's the thing, right? There is not one single sense in any part of Scripture, Romans 5, whatever, that Adam and the account of Adam and anything that happened around Adam was anything but it literally true as it is described. If you look at First Chronicles, and Chronicles, by the way, was put together after the exile, after the return of God's people to the land, sent back by the decree, ultimately by God, but the decree of Cyrus, the Persian ruler. And under that, it's probably compiled by Ezra the scribe, but this is compiled after the exile, and actual history. Chronicles mainly focuses a lot on the, the Davidic line. Mainly, not exclusively, but mainly focuses on God's preserving his people all the way through. And now, I know that William Lane Craig doesn't deny Adam as a historical person or something like that. And he has to hold on to him in some way, shape or form. But he gets rid of everything else. First Chronicles chapter 1 begins with Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah. And whenever it talks about Adam, there's no sense in which the details of his life were anyway anything but as described. Okay, let's, let's take this to Cain and Abel. Because that's part of Genesis 1 to 11, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his own brother Abel because his works are evil. Is that figurative too? Tell me which part of that is myth. Oh, that. You see, you pick and choose. You pick and choose who you'll have, what details you have, based upon reason. Reason becomes the interpreter of scripture. Human, fallen, reason. Not reason, reason directed by scripture. By the way, I'm not against philosophy. We use elements of philosophy even to explain various Protestant doctrines, by the way. But they are under the authority of scripture. They are to support, they are to be the handmaid, as Turton said, Francis Turton. They are to be the handmaid of theology. They are to, to be the helpmeet of theology, not the other way around. And in William Lane Craig's case, theology is very much the handmaid of philosophy, and it's the other way around. He may say other things, and it's patently clear that it's not true. How do you kind of understand that kind of a way of framing things? These structure the primeval history. They have been, I think, aptly compared to the, the backbone of a vertebrate. Um, the narrative is structured from beginning to end along these genealogies. And I think that they show a historical interest on the part of the author, that this isn't just pure... An historical interest. What an absolutely 
pathetic way of putting it, but I know. Ology, but that this is meant to be about real people and events. Um, but it's important to understand that this is the genealogy of a mytho history, a little mytho history that's less than 2,000 years long between the creation of the world and the call of Abraham. Just 2,000 years, even by ancient standards, that would have been regarded as uh, tiny as a blink of an eye. Uh, And so, again... So it's not only... So I'm confused here. Is it... Are we saying now the start of First Chronicles is mytho-history now as well? Based on what? And the seriologists... And then you're what, they're borrowing the standards of storytelling of the world? Beggar's belief. Absolutely beggar's One belief. doesn't want to press these for literality or to try to ask, well, are there gaps in the genealogies and how large are the gaps? These are meant to be genealogies of this little tiny mytho history that is less than 2,000 years in length. We're going to go to a quick break. Can you imagine preaching this? this way yeah we're not exactly sure uh yeah these people existed but how exactly we're not exactly sure which parts are true which parts are not well that's 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 powerful and that's one of the reasons why uh liberal churches are just empty because they have nothing absolutely nothing to say within a generation liberal churches just through their theology just, I suppose, destroy themselves and don't last very long. Uh, welcome, Benjamin from Dublin. Welcome. The, uh, and, and if anybody else is listening, and please let us know where you're listening from. It's kind of a, it's kind of a nice thing. I think it gets people s- discussing things in the chat. And feel free, feel free to ask questions. Uh, if if I am not explaining something properly, that is entirely possible. It's entirely probable at times. Hopefully, I don't skip over anything. Um, hopefully, I don't misrepresent anyone. Not intentional. And if, if there's anything I'm missing, please let me know. Um, so, one listener puts it like this. He teaches that God is subject to chance, playing the best odds in the multiverse roulette. No surprise, he is in the dark and creation. Yeah, I suppose that would be his Molinism, Vladimir. Yeah. And, um, again, it's his philosophical outlook, philosophy, human reason is his final authority. He may say other things, but that's his final authority. Um, Benjamin writes, he fails to understand the immutability of God. Nothing ever occurs to God. He is never taken by surprise. Amen. He is never taken by surprise. And the scriptures are for all ages. And they are for for doctor for proof for instruction righteousness. And man will try to basically follow the lead of the serpent, which says, in old English, yea, hath God said. Did God really say that? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Who who is it? Whose hermeneutic is that from Genesis 3? Hmm. Making you doubt what God said. Making you then deny what God said. If you follow what he's saying, 
if you follow what William Lane Craig is saying here, and you actually, and you've fallen into this, you have denied what God, or you've doubted what God has said because of this. And you say, hmm, really, does not match up with this, that, and the other? Um, denying what he said. And then you become the judge of what is right and wrong. You've fallen, you've fallen for the same trick of the serpent in Genesis 3. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a, is a sacrament. It is a, there was two sacraments in the outward signs and seals. One leading unto death, one leading unto life. And it wasn't the physical fruit. This is the thing that, you know, William Lane Craig who admits that he's pretty poor at anthropology, biblical anthropology, that doesn't understand that the reason they were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, the reason they fell was not because of the literal fruit or getting magical powers or anything else. It was breaking the law of God. The whole point of it was that once you have done that, you decide what is good and evil. Man becomes the one who decides. He has his eyes open. He's not eating from the tree of life anymore. He's not following God. So, yes, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, um, Benjamin compiled uh, Macedonia. Costa Rica, Canada, the UK, the Republic of Ireland, and Mexico, a truly international audience. And you know what? Had I not asked, I would have not had a clue. So um, if, if, you if, you're, if your country's not listed there, please let us know in the comment section in uh, the YouTube chat. Okay, let's get back to our critique. Now, we're going to skip ahead. We're kind of... Um, there's so many things I'd love to cover... 56 minutes in, you know, you'd love to cover the whole thing, but you can't really. 56 minutes in, he makes the following comment of how he uh, basically doubts original sin, but I'm just going to let him talk for himself and then we're going to comment on it. And in the, in the Genesis story, it's through the actions of uh, the snake and the tree and the apple and, and so on. Um, what is there a kind of analogy scenario something that that happened in the historical world of these early hominid couple that you think would have to have in some sense reflected that or at least given uh there have been some kind of event in which they did rebel against god what uh, the question is astonishing really is that yeah we don't really know what has happened but is there something that happened before that that's kind of reflected in that and that we can kind of speculate and guess on the perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture is under attack here. What would that be, if, if you don't mind? I think that you put it exactly right. Some kind of event of rebellion against God. I think Paul's teaching... Some kind of event. You just can't know, can you? What happens? Some kind of rebellion. Some rebellion. So, you, so Scripture tells us what happened. And at the end of that, William Lane Craig says, I don't know. <laughs> Who does that remind you of? Reminds me of, remember Steve Lawson years ago when he was, um, that clip, I should have gotten that out. And he was rebuking 
what was it? Steve Lawson rebuking. Um, oh, I can't remember his name. You know, remember the seven living your best life now. Please tell me in, in the comments. <laughs> um, Joel Osteen. Yes, yes. Why can't I remember his name? Anyway, so yeah, Joel Osteen years ago on Larry King asked about different religious groups, would they go to heaven or would this group go to hell and all this kind of stuff. And he couldn't answer. I don't know. Okay. William Lane Craig, I'm sure he's read Genesis 3. Asked about, well, how exactly did Adam fall? Some kind of sin. But basically say, I don't know. Guys, you got to stop listening to people who don't know what they're talking about. At best, at best, he he's woefully and sinfully ignorant and should stop speaking. At best. But he's making a living out of this. He's making a living out of deceiving people and leading them away from God. This guy, like, you, we might think, oh, how, uh, I saw a video shared about around, what was it, Ben Shapiro the other day? I know Ben Shapiro is not a Christian or anything. He's a, he's a Jew, but William Lane Craig is, has a massive influence, sadly. There are, are men who actually understand and believe the scriptures. This is, this is not an intellectual issue here. This is, a, this is an unbelief issue. Romans 5 commits us to that. He says, therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Adam opened the floodgates through which sin and evil came into the human race with its... It's an interesting phrase he uses, open the floodgates. He seems to have a problem with original sin as well. What do you mean? How did he open the floodgates? You know, death, you know, by imputation? which is original sin, or you could say that his example was terrible and everybody else followed his example. That's Pelagianism, but he, ha he doesn't seem to have gone that far, but it's dangerous. Once, once you start rejecting original sin, it's a dangerous position to go into. Disastrous consequences. So there had to be a historical fall, but we shouldn't press the narrative in Genesis, literalistically, to try to discern the detail. Why? What if I turned around and said, you know what? Romans 5, I think, is part of this mytho-history. Or, you know, First Corinthians, or First Chronicles 1 is part of this mytho-history. I think I'll have that as mytho-history. Well, if we're just choosing things randomly uh, to be mytho-history, without giving us clear reasons why this is... Why should we believe that there's a fall? If you can't really, surely it, it's up to individual interpretation then, whether there's a fall. Or maybe the fall is is really um, not about sin, but it's pointing towards something else. Do you see the kind of ridiculousness that this can get into? If you believe this, the, the entire edifice of the Christian faith crumbles and is gone. You're holding on to threads, if, if even that. Because he's saying, well, 
don't push the 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 narrative why he's using now at this point his own reason not the plain meaning of scripture as the final authority of what this event was because it is cloaked in mythological imagery and figurative language I don't think we're at all committed to thinking that there was, as I say, a tree with magical fruit on it, such that if you bit this fruit and ate it, it would give you knowledge of good and evil. He wasn't kidding how he's real. He re- it's amazing. He spent all these years studying, but he still doesn't know. He still doesn't even know, understand. I've never seen such a view of this, you know, magical fruit or something. He doesn't know what the teaching is from mainstream Orthodox Christianity. Uh, Notice that this is not anti-supernaturalism because this was not imparted by God. This was a property of the fruit itself. Uh, And and then they've got this talking snake in the garden who's identified as just one. How is it a property? Anyway. he warned them and anything that was done was by God. He might have used instruments or whatever. This is it's kind of arguing like um, like a deist almost for that part. But Beasts of the field. Uh, it's not identified as Satan. So I think the whole narrative is cloaked in the imagery and figurative language of myth. And therefore, we can't really know exactly what the act of rebellion was, whereby Adam and Eve turned against God and then found themselves estranged from... I don't know. That's that's William and Craig. How did Adam fall? I don't know. Wow. He spent all these years, he wrote a hardback book that's going to cost me 27 quid once it comes out. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> kind of go, hey, if you still don't know after having read these chapters of how Adam fell, maybe the book isn't really worth it. I am an alienated from God. Uh, and that, I think, is to affirm the theological essentials of the teaching of the narrative. You know, it's interesting because mm. I think there's a bit of a symmetry between how I've thought about this too, Bill, where I think you were really working hard to show the theological possibility. Going to skip ahead here a second. Uh, there's a, he brings an objection, which seemed to really annoy. He doesn't like being called a liberal, and Justin Brierley is really just bringing an objection that would be brought. Um, oh, sorry, pressed the wrong button here. I'll let Justin Brierley, I think this is around the place where he reads, he gives this kind of counter question. The nomenclature terminology advocates similar views. So I feel quite in good company on this. I mean, if, if, if an inerrant is like J.I. 
questions uh, coming up here. And he's, look, he's appealing to J.I. Packer. I don't know what J.I. Packer's views on this is. And if J.I. Packer believes this, well, it's along with J.I. Packer's other aberrant views, which includes um, him writing at the back of one of Kreef's books, which says that everybody's going to get to heaven or probably get to heaven. And, uh, you know, asking the question at the back of it, is it right? The book is called Ecumenical Jihad, and J.I. Packer thought it was wonderful. So, And J.I. Packer was also part of ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, which watered down the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He also appeals to um, C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, I would describe as a Roman Catholic, if you took Mary and the Pope out of it. Not great company. This is one of the reasons why I've got a major problem with C.S. Lewis being used and quoted so extensively by evangelicals. Because C.S. Lewis's own theology was poor. Almost as poor as William Lane Craig's. Packer finds this acceptable. I think that the church can be comfortable. Just a quick answer to those who would say, well, if you're going to take that, that bit figuratively, Bill, what about the rest of Scripture? Maybe we should take Jesus' resurrection figuratively as well. That's a very naive response, Justin. <laughs> this is based upon a careful literary genre analysis of this work. I love it's like very careful genre. I don't have to explain it to you. I just have to say it. And give one reason. What's different about it? He just said careful genre. Can't be. Can't be. Can't be fruit. Can't be, can't be a snake, can't be a tree. Oh, it's clearly, he never explained why. He just says it clearly is. I'm, and it's, it's patronizing because it's like, I'm smarter than you. Um, if you are going to, it's a legitimate question. And by the way, in the first few centuries, um, you had Origen and Clement of Alexander and a couple other people saying, well, they, they added in, their way of understanding, say, the f first week of creation week, that they were a bit figurative and place that, influenced by Greek philosophy. And that Greek philosophy was also influential in Corinth. And what did they deny? What did they struggle with? That it, there was no physical resurrection. Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That it was just a spiritual resurrection. So it's a legitimate question. There's no justification for it. The plain sense of scripture is rejected for the latest theory. The latest views of men who believe that we have evolved. He is an evolutionist. He is not a person who believes that God created a, He sees, yeah, there was an Adam, and he was the first human, but there was pre-Adamic non-humans. That's pre-Adamic non-human. And he's like, well, here's, here's just another hypothesis. This is not my view. This is my hypothesis. He's very, very careful. He's saying, this is not my view. This is my hypothesis. Let it float around there. This is a great way, by the way, you're dealing with the foundations of human art. Just my hypothesis what happened. Just let it float around there and cause whatever mayhem it might, may cause. Um, I like to compare it to the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you have Jewish apocalyptic literature in which 
There are fantastic descriptions like a dragon whose tail... Yeah, and Jewish apocalyptic literature mainly came from the... From the Oh, what do you call it? Between the time of the old, the finish of the canon of the Old Testament and between the New Testament. And it was pretty common around the time of first century and all that. Um, Book of Zechariah largely is Jewish apocalyptic literature. You could even argue maybe some of the, the dreams and stuff like that. But if you want to talk about that kind of style of writing, it was in the, some of the apocryphal writing. This isn't part of scripture now. But, Bill, I mean... I, <laughs> This is, this is like thousands of years later. And you're not saying that this is apocalyptic. You're saying this is mytho-history. Very good comment is brought up in, in the, um, in the comments here saying, how about Balaam's talking donkey? Donkey talked? Is that part of mytho-history? See, you bring everything everything into question. Now, again, there are, oh, greetings, um, Jonathan from South Carolina, welcome. You, br you have to, there are part of scriptures that are literally f figurative again, but you have to go, it is a figure of what and why. Can't just say, well, the language is clearly this. The temple is clearly a figure of the church because the scriptures tell us. The scriptures tell us. I think that's enough for to see. Any questions you can fire off in the, in the comments there in case I haven't covered anything. I think that's probably enough. You can listen to it on the Unbelievable Radio program. It's... You can listen to this on YouTube. A book, haven't finished reading it yet, but so far I'm really enjoying it and it's fantastic uh, that you could read on this if you're if you're struggling with this topic. Um, don't normally recommend books, but, but that I'm not completely finished, but it's a book by um, William Van Dudeward and the publisher is excellent. It's Reformation Heritage Books and um, about a third of the way through it and the, the quest for the historical Adam I had this on my shelf. It was pretty much almost the same title that William Lane Craig has for his book that's coming out was in November. And with COVID, it'll probably be later than that because there's a lot of books been held back um, with various things. Um, he, William Van Dudeward, goes through the views that have been held on, he focuses on Genesis 1 and 2, and he deals with scripture first, he deals with a lot of passages, you don't undermine just, now he's mainly dealing with historical Adam, historically, but he's also dealing with the literal interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. Um, he deals with kind of, a, it's kind of like historical theology, this book, goes through the patristic and medieval quest for, for Adam, Adam in Reformation era, Excellent compilation of a lot of people showing, you know, people like Francis Turretin and others, Perkins, what their view was of the literal view of Genesis 1 and the creation week. And he goes right through to the, to the present day and then asks in the last main chapter, what difference does it make? And thoroughly enjoying, thoroughly enjoying it so far. And, um, 
I think it's 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 an it's an important work that I think would you be do well to to pick up if you can pick it up somewhere. Now, is there is there a storm? Somebody's saying something about a storm in South Carolina. Uh, hopefully, there's no storm taking place. So, yeah, there might be other things. I try not to spend if, if if it can be covered in one program i try to cover it in one program so that would probably be me covering um william lane craig i don't think there'll be anything next week on that that's just it and i have the book on pre-order i plan on reading it later in the year whenever it comes out and doing a critique a full critique of the book then because this is really me going off segments, little bits here, little bits there. And there's a possibility, more than a possibility, you know, that you can misunderstand exactly what people are getting at. I've tried to understand what he, what his view is. But his view is dangerous. Um, keep... Yeah, apparently there's a tropical storm in South Carolina. I never heard of that, but keep our keep uh, Jonathan in the chat in your prayers in South Carolina, and um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully nothing dangerous down there. So we'll leave it there for the program. Um, we'll hit the music to finish off program. If you have ideas for programs, we get a radio at gmail.com. Next week we'll probably go back to the catechism, the larger catechism. It's on questions relating to Jesus Christ as mediator, Jesus Christ the second Adam. This is, this is, you might think that this is not important. It is massively important. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. In Adam, all die, but in Christ, all shall be made alive. It's been Paul Finn. Thank you so much for listening in. May God bless you all.